I'm Mike Gorman, and you're listening to the Celtics Pod podcast for Celtics Blog. Here's your host, Adam Taylor. What's up, everybody? Bonus episode today. Happy Thursday. I know I like to start off every day by saying happy whatever day it is. Today, I'm joined by a former Celtics champion, a ring holder. Obviously, it's going to be from that 2008 era. I'm joined by Scott Pollard. How are you doing today, Scott? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, man. No problem, man. Pleasure's all mine. Look, man, you've been out of the league now, what, 12 years? 12 years. How's life been treating you since you uh, moved back to civilization? Oh, life is good. Um, You know, I miss the paychecks a little bit. (laughs) But uh, as far as the grind on my body and all that, uh, I'm just fine. Everything hurts all the time, and uh, I don't mind. I I don't miss uh, getting up and running and and warming up uh, for two hours before every game to play 15 or 20 minutes. So, um, yeah, life is good. I love spending more time with my family. And uh, I'm a real estate broker now in Indiana, so, you know. I've, I've settled into normal suburb dad life, I guess you could say. That's the dream though, right? The American dream. Yeah. Indiana, so you moved to basketball Mecca, so you're still enshrined within the basketball. Well, actually, I, I, I guess you could say I never really left Indiana. Once I got traded here from Sacramento about halfway through my career, uh, spent three, three of my seasons here, three of my 11 years here, and then I played one year with Cleveland, one year with Boston, so I just kept my house here. Uh, and then I got divorced here, and I have kids with my first wife. So uh, as opposed to ban- abandoning them and going back to Kansas, uh, I decided I'd probably rather uh, spend the, the time here. And, and uh, it, I, honestly, it's a big investment when you get divorced. And, and uh, it, this is not to slight anyone, uh, but when you give somebody a lot of money for visitation, uh, you're going to use it. And so uh, we have a very unique visitation arrangement with my kids, and I hate using that term, but that's the legal term for it here. Uh, we, we share time equally, and uh, many years I end up actually with the kids more uh, than their mother. Uh, and it's not exactly agreeable. It always it never has been. Uh, but uh, the, the honest truth is uh, we, we've uh, spent a lot of money uh, to, to get it this way for the benefit of the children. And, uh, I think it's working out best for them that I'm here and not in Kansas. So, I mean, that's admirable. Uh, definitely. The a best. lot of personal information for you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just jump right into the deep end and, uh, we'll circle back around to the more shallow stuff towards the middle. I mean, that's an admirable, admirable decision. And how do you find Indiana? Like, obviously you spent, what was it? Three years there during your playing career. Uh, did you make friends there that you kind of do you have that social crowd now or are you more solitary oh no i i've been here almost as long as i spent time in kansas i grew up in, i was born in utah i grew up there for a little while and then I, I went to san diego uh for uh, the rest of my childhood and high school and then i went to kansas i spent probably 18 or 20 years in kansas off off and on it was always my off-season home when i was uh, in the nba uh even when i lived here uh, we'd go back there in the summers, but, uh, you know, I've been here since 2003 off and on. And so we're at 17 years now here. And, um, me and social go well together. Uh, so I do have a lot of social, uh, uh, commitments, friends. Um, and that's part of what led me to be a real estate broker. I'm, I'm really enjoying our time here. My wife moved here from Colorado, uh, and we have a four year old together. 
Uh, and uh, so she's done a great job of entrenching herself into charitable efforts here. And she's actually involved in our office now, our new office that we created in the real estate world. So um, it's a team effort as it always is, raising children or running a business. And uh, so we're, uh, we're happy to be here. And, and it's just, you know, the, the city we live in is called Carmel and everywhere else in the world it's Carmel, but here it's Carmel. And uh, it's voted, uh, I think, two years in a row recently, the best place in the country to raise a family. So there's no arguing where we live. Uh, the cost of living is wonderful. The, the, the streets are clean. Uh, life is good. There's a lot of diversity, although people outside the city in Indiana think it's all white people here. Um, there's a whole lot of people from a lot of different places here because um, a lot of people that are executives from other countries get, get posted up here because there's a lot of headquarters in Indianapolis and they all end up living here. Uh, on the north side. So um, it, it is a lot more diverse than one would think uh, as far as uh, uh, Indiana is concerned. Uh, but uh, it's, it's a great place and I, I got no arguments. It's, it's a great place to call home. And uh, even though it's not home for me, I'm, I'm kind of a vagrant. I'll just go where the, where the work is. Uh, so uh, that's, that's why we're here and it, it's a great place. And how do people react when they come to buy a house and they've got a humongous human being with a championship ring trying to sell it to them? Well, I, I, first, I don't wear the ring when I go on that. I, I would hope that people don't uh, hire me just because I was an NBA champion. But, uh, you know, uh, it's funny. Uh, most of my clients, now, once in a while, they, they know who I am or we're friends or we're, we have relationships, uh, uh, personal relationships. So that's, that's who ends up being my client. But for the most part, most people have no idea I played in the NBA or anything. They see me for the first time. They're like, whoa, you know, when we talked on the phone, I didn't think you were going to be a giant. <laughs> and so uh, it's, it's fun on some levels. And then on other levels, it's like, wow, you know, 12 years out. And it's pretty funny in a basketball mecca, as you mentioned. Not a lot of people know who I am. And that just goes to the diversity of people that live from here from around the country and around the world. Uh, again, I'm not saying it's – you know, the diversity capital of the world. I'm just saying it's more diverse than people think. And, uh, and I've run into a whole lot of people that are from other countries and uh, that, that get transplanted here, whether it's Lilly or one of the other big companies that makes headquarters here uh, from other countries. And, and uh, they, they have no idea that I played basketball. And they don't really care. Uh, they just want to know if I'm a good real estate broker. Uh, thus far from the referrals I've gotten from, from people uh, in the area and people that leave the area and they, they tell their people when they leave, Hey, this is somebody you want to work to. Uh, I think I'm doing a pretty good job. I mean, that's dope. What like getting those refer references and knowing it's not because it's like, Hey, our realtors, an ex NBA player. It's because of the work that you're actually doing in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also I don't have to um, defend myself because most people don't realize the survivor act uh, angle as well. So, uh, you know, the people that do, they're like, oh, I thought you'd be a lot different because I watched you on Survivor. Uh, and I thought I didn't know how to how to take you on the first time, but you're actually really nice and funny in person. I was like, yeah, it's reality TV. <laughs> how did that adjustment go from like being in the NBA? So everybody knows who you are, wherever you go, you're recognized. You've got that celebrity status. And then like now it's normal to just be part of civilization what was that transition like for you? Did you like the way you slowly got that anonymity back or did you kind of try and cling on to the roof? Anonymity, I wouldn't go there uh, because I'm still seven feet tall and now I'm 300 pounds. So uh, I still go places and people are like, okay, pro wrestler, 
basketball, football. Like that's the – and mostly pro wrestler and football now because I'm so big. Uh, but, you know, I, I still get recognized places even when they don't know who I am or what I used to do just because I am a giant. I'm a, I'm a huge person, and uh, my personality isn't exactly tiny either. So uh, I, don't, I don't hide in public. There's no chance of doing that. I've been giant my whole life. I was two feet tall when I was born. I had to duck to get out of my mom. So uh, I just make an entrance wherever I go. Uh, and people tend to recognize me, again, whether it's Survivor, NBA, or, you know, the great Kali. I've been called that guy from pro wrestling. So you never, you never know who's going to stop you in an airport, stop you on the street corner, uh, just because you're a giant human being. And so uh, whether it's uh, an anonymity from basketball, yes, that, that you could be argued that, that people don't really remember me from basketball because everyone's memory is short unless you're in the, in the NBA arena. As far as being stopped in public for no reason other than being a giant, that happens every day of my life. Are we looking at any WWE appearances? <laughs> you know, um, <clears throat> No, <laughs> uh, I'm 45 and my body's broken. I, I, literally the last two days I've, I've had a struggle walking around because my back went out, but it's getting better. And, and this happens a couple times a year because I did fracture my spine while I was playing in the NBA and it's never been the same, but you know, that's part of being an ex-athlete. That's no big deal, but true story. I actually had dinner uh, after my rookie year. I was in Canada being, uh, I was in a movie. I had a role in a movie that was never released called the New Jersey Turnpikes. And during the filming, I got to talk with some other people and they're like, hey, uh, I'm going to dinner with Vince, the, cap the president of the WWE. Vince, Vince McMahon. McMahon, yes. And Triple H, and they want to see if you can go with us. And I said, yeah, sure. So I know for a fact now that back then they were seeing if I could be in the WWE because of my personality. I used to, you know, have in college, I dyed uh, my hair and, and uh, did my fingernails and all that kind of stuff. So I think they were thinking my personality would be a little bit different than I am in person, uh, which as you can tell by now is a little more droll, uh, a little less like, hey, pay attention to me. I'm not Jimmy Superfly Snooker jumping off the top rope. You know, um, I can do that, but that uh, takes a lot of energy. And I knew I was better at basketball already. And so I was kind of mellow during the, the dinner time and I think they passed, but they were really nice. They bought dinner. Uh, and it was cool, but at the time, I just thought we were just hanging out. And as I look back at that, that was absolutely them seeing if uh, they could recruit me away from the NBA. They were asking me all kinds of questions about travel, my family. Uh, and, and again, I was 23, 24 years old at the time, and I had no idea. But uh, looking back, I'm sure they, they were seeing if maybe uh, it was a possibility for me. And, and really, when I first retired from the NBA in 2008, I briefly considered it, but, uh, again, just the, you know, the, I had just rebuilt both my ankles and my body just wasn't up to, I, I know people say it's fake, but they're still doing a lot of athletic moves, uh, when they do what they're doing. And, uh, I just don't know that my body could handle jumping around and, and, uh, wrestling with those guys. It, it'd be a hell of a lot of fun. And, uh, I think I could have done it at a, at a younger age or instead of the NBA. I know this is a basketball podcast, so we will talk basketball in a moment, I promise. But my daughter recently got into WWE, as all kids do at one point in their life. And I had to explain, like, yeah, this is fake, but it's choreographed. Like, you're still flipping off a turnbuckle onto canvas. It's not, it doesn't tickle. People do miss and actually hit you, and you actually do get, like, mess up and get hurt. So, yeah, yeah if your back's not feeling too great and you've got, 
whatever surgeries you've had to have throughout your career, then yeah, I don't think WWE. I mean, when you went quiet at the beginning, I was like, yeah, I've got a scoop here. He's going to join the WWE. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, that's the smartest option possible. Yeah. So, I, I wish, actually. I think it'd be a hell of a lot of fun. I, and I, I do have that side of my personality. I could jump on the microphone and start talking crap to people. But uh, at this stage of my life, I just couldn't be on the road like that again. Uh, and But first and foremost, it, it's my body. And there's just no way my body could do that. Yeah, and the NBA travel's bad enough, never mind the WWE travel, which is <laughs> meant to be as, as bad or worse. Those guys are insane. So I just want to touch on a little bit of basketball for everybody because uh, they'll kill me if I don't when I'm talking to you. The one thing that stood out to me is the people that you played with. Um, you know, Reggie Miller, Peja Stojakovic, Paul Pierce, KG, Ronda. What is it like being around all these guys daily? And like, are you still in contact with them? Or do you meet up sometimes? Um, as far as the NBA guys... No, I don't talk to really anybody except Jack Vaughn. Uh, but we were teammates in college, roommates in college, best men at each other's weddings. We're very close. We were born a day apart. He's a day older than me. Uh, and so we've, we've been close since minute one. As soon as we met, we knew we were going to go to college together. We knew we were going to be roommates. Um, and we've been very close to this day. And I'm very happy about his coaching career in the NBA. He, I think he got kind of screwed over for that Brooklyn Nets head coaching job. Uh, but he's got, the I think, the highest paid uh, assistant coaching job. He's lead assistant for the Brooklyn Nets. And uh, obviously everybody knows who he is. The NBA is a small family. And I have no doubt that the next time he gets a head coaching job, he'll do very well. Uh, but, you know, um, the NBA guys playing with, you know, I played with LeBron. I played with Chris Webber. I played with Grant Hill. I played with Rick Mahorn, Joe Dumars. These are old, you know, the, the bad boys there. So um, my career of the people I've played with, you know, really starts in the 80s because of the people I played with. Uh, not me personally, but the people I played with uh, that taught me how to play in the NBA and, and the people I played against in the NBA. My rookie year, I played against Charles Barkley and Patrick Ewing. And Patrick Ewing was my childhood idol. I mean, I'm, that was my welcome to the NBA moment. But uh, as far as teammates, uh, you know, you learn something from everybody. And if you're not learning from your teammates, then you're not a good teammate. Uh, you, you've got to be able, even if you're the best player on the team, to take something from the players that are older than you take players something from the talent of the younger guys or, or the work ethic of the younger guys or, or the older guys. And uh, so I learned something from all those guys. Reggie Miller was always the first guy in the arena and always the last guy to leave. There was nobody like that except maybe Kevin Garnett. And Kevin was a little bit younger than when I was teammates with Reggie. And so Kevin would come in and go hard. And uh, Kevin was a great teammate. And I think he would admit that we weren't uh, – we were a little bit like salt and pepper. We, we could go together, but we weren't really going to hang out together. Uh, off the court and I still feel that way about him I didn't like him when I wasn't teammates with him I hated Reggie Miller when I wasn't teammates with him until I was teammates with him and so you know I hated Kobe Bryant and I think that it, the same reason applies I think that if I had been teammates with Kobe Bryant I would understand why I hated playing against Kobe Bryant it's the same thing with uh, like I said right Reggie Miller but uh, and, and Kevin Garnett but I learned so much from those two guys. I learned a lot from Rick Mahorn, Joe Dumars. Grant Hill was one of my favorite teammates uh, my rookie year. I learned a whole lot about being a, a professional and being an adult, uh, taking care of myself in the NBA. Uh, and so when I was starstruck, it was always against the, uh, somebody I was playing against. It was never anybody on my team. And I, I, I guess it's hard to explain that because I played with some of the greatest superstars ever, but I played against – 
all of the greatest superstars ever in the last two decades before, you know, 2008. So when, when I look back at it, it, it does seem weird and it sounds weird, I guess, that when I walk into a locker room and I'm not starstruck to be sitting there two doors down from LeBron James, but at the time we were teammates, shoot, I'm at the end of my career and he's just in his fourth year and he's not LeBron James now that he was, you know, when he was back then. So, you know, I was talking with Gloria, his mom, because I was closer in age with her. She's only three years older than me. And so I, I would talk to Gloria more than I talked to LeBron because she was always around and she's a great lady. Um, and uh, so it, it just, when, when you talk about being uh, in an NBA locker room, it's always a surreal experience because there's always something going on, whether it's somebody's, you know, buddy or, or manager or something that's interrupting or their girlfriend causing drama or their wife causing drama or, the, you know, there's a, there's a constant soap opera uh, at least it was in my day, of people causing issues. So every time you walk into a locker room, there's always something like, whoa, man, did you hear about, yeah, man, whoa. You know, and, and then it's just, it's over, and we get out on the court, and the real business begins. But um, it's always a surreal experience from practice to shoot-arounds and then to the games when all the popcorn starts popping. And I, I don't know how they did it in the bubble this year. That would have been either the best part of my season in my career or it would have been the worst part of my season career. I, I don't know because I wasn't there. And I'm pretty sure I'm glad that I wasn't there because that seems like uh, both a really cool experience but a really awful experience at the same time. Yeah, I mean, these guys, what was it, 95 days if you, if you were the Lakers that you were in that bubble and mm-hmm. you want a cup of coffee and you're paying Jimmy Butler like $30, $40 for a cup of coffee. And it's just everything was must have been so more magnified in the way that you went day to day because as I remember Jalen Brown saying like uh, wherever I go I see Donovan Mitchell and maybe I don't want to see Donovan Mitchell today but you don't really have that that way out because everybody's just on top of each other so uh, for someone your size as well everyone being that close together all the time would be quite difficult I could imagine (laughs) I, I know from my survivor experience uh, th- that was about seven weeks away from my family, basically quarantined in a bubble, uh, just happened to be in Cambodia. But um, the, the connection I can make to what you just said was there's times where you just don't want to be around, even your teammates. You, you, you don't want to be around anybody. And uh, so, yeah, the hotel room is your respite, but at the same time, you're still stuck. And at least they got to call home or FaceTime with their family or kids or, or older brothers or siblings or whatever. Um, but, uh, that, that would be really difficult because no matter what, like I said, there's always something going on in the NBA locker room. And there's always that time that it's like, Hey, I need to go home and be away from you guys for a while so I can recharge my batteries and want to be around you guys tomorrow. Uh, because it's, it's a grind. And so I could absolutely see, I, I'm a, not surprised, but I, if, if there were a lot of fights we didn't hear about, between teams or teammates or other teams in the hotel. I bet you there was probably a lot more that went on in those hotels that we're, we're privy to uh, because I know for a fact, a couple stories personally from two different teams uh, that there were some things that didn't get made public that really 100% happened. And uh, they're pretty wild stories. I I hate to be that guy and tease, uh, but I will say one of them, involved a rental of a house. This is a story. 
on the golf course, and supposedly some players were sneaking out to that house they rented to go hang out and have a good time. Another story is one team particularly uh, hired a new uh, massage therapist that may or may not have been a legitimate massage therapist. And another story, uh, different team. These are three different teams. Another story. Now, this one, I 100%. And now I'm 100% on all of them because they're all from people that were there. Now, I'm not saying these are stories I heard from people coming back uh, that were friends with somebody who were there. I'm talking about these stories come from people that were in the bubble. This was the team they worked for, and they saw this happen. So I know they all happen. Another one involved a lake and a player that wanted to swim across the lake to go, I guess there were some girls across the lake or something. And that player ignored the fact that there were alligators in that lake. And that player was told by someone else, hey man, watch this. And some, somebody threw something in the water and an alligator popped up and got it. He was like, oh. Like he didn't know there would be alligators in that lake. So uh, we could have had some really bad stories come out of that bubble uh, had anyone or all of these stories become public in a negative way. And, and so I'm glad that the NBA keeps a cap on things, keeps a lid on things. Uh, but I don't because I'm not in the NBA, so I don't have to. And I know these stories are true. So there's some nuggets from what, what really happened at the bubble. That's three stories verified by people that worked for the franchises, three different franchises. I mean, it's not what you wouldn't expect, if that makes sense. These guys are millionaires living their best life. I'm not, I wouldn't follow the rules. Yeah. I would be, I, I would probably be the guy that rented a house on the golf course and stuck out to it to have my family there and just go hang out with my family. I, I would probably be that guy. I mean, we all made fun of Lou Williams for going to the strip club. Yeah. Why? Yeah, that was hilarious to me at the time because the, the story is the wings, but really, you know, he just needed to get away from his teammates and chill out for a while. There's nothing wrong with that. That's normal. I mean, look, I'm just, I've got every team that you've played for's lineup in front of me. Uh, I've been looking at them on and off as we're talking, like, and I keep coming back to 08 because obviously this is a Celtics podcast and everyone that's listening is going to be Celtics fans. And I'd be doing everyone an injustice if I weren't looking for some form of post-championship locker room party story that wouldn't get anybody in trouble. Uh, I I don't care. I'll tell my own, I'll tell myself. I'll tell on myself. Um, we uh, I wasn't supposed to be running at the point. I was still in a boot. In fact, I I uh, yeah I was I was still wearing a walking boot from my second surgery to, to fix my ankle, uh, and so Brian Scalabrini and I were not in gym or game clothes because we were not in the active roster, and so we knew we were going to win, and we ran back to the locker room and changed clothes, and they had all the saran wrap covering all the of our locker cubbies. We had to rip ours open so we could get our suits off and put some game uh, you know warm ups on. And then uh, we ran back out and then, you know, the game ended and all the festivities began. And, and uh, this was, I, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of people that are aware of this, but maybe not your listeners because it's been 12 years. But uh, as you well know, smoking was illegal then. And, and uh, they were like, go ahead and fire up a cigar, man, red hour back. And so we were lighting up cigars in the building and we didn't leave. Now, 
we all celebrated for a while and then it was like we're going to you know we broke up into wherever we were going to celebrate right well one of my brothers was in town and i had some friends in town and we decided to just go to the bar in the td bank north garden that's standing right there behind you i don't think i left that building until about 5 a.m and we were smoking and drinking and there was fans in there and they just kind of kept it open and kept pouring drinks. It wasn't like we were just alone. It, was just, it wasn't just us. I mean, there was hundreds of people there. And I thought that was really cool. So as again, it's not literally a secret story, uh, but I don't think a lot of people realize that after we won that thing, we stayed in that building all night. And uh, when I was walking home, uh, it, sun was coming up and then, you know, the, uh, was it Ovechkin that was famously uh, pretty much drinking out of the Stanley Cup? Is that his name? For like a week straight. And he had a lot of good stories. This was before social media was as big as it is now. And I'm pretty glad about that because I also probably wasn't sober for a good long time because I couldn't go anywhere in Boston without somebody going, hey, man, I'm buying you a drink. Let's do a shot. You know, can't wait to see the ring. And so there, it really was, every time I went out in public, I ate for free, drank for free for a long time. And so I probably wasn't sober for a couple of weeks after, uh, after we won it. And that was, that was my NBA championship story that not a lot of people know, but I'm kind of good. I'm kind of glad that the, uh, the social media didn't exist that back then the way it does now. Yeah. Social media went absolutely crazy around like 2012. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I remember it being out because League Pass had been released in 07. So for someone like me, that's like that's how I consume all basketball. Like that, that's a year that really rings like it's one of the greatest years ever. Um, but social media was like 2012 that it really kicked off. So you escaped. You you got through it unscathed. There's no drunken Scott Pollard videos floating around on Instagram. No, not well, not that I know of. But uh, I remember before. This is old. Uh, what was that? The old uh, website that was like, uh, it was a social media. MySpace. That's it. How'd you know? <laughs> You're reading my mind. So uh, before I was in Boston or like right as I got to Boston, there was a guy on MySpace. It was about six, eight. And he was saying he was me. And he would go out and meet people in Boston saying he was me. And, and they would buy him drinks and dinner and stuff. And then I'd meet these people. And they're like, hey, man, I was hanging out with you the other night. I'm like, no, you weren't. <laughs> I was home with my wife and kids the other night. I don't know what you were talking about, but uh, I'm, I don't go out alone. And so uh, they were like, no, no, it was you. I was like, um, show me that. And so, yeah, they showed me. And so that was my social media. Uh, you know, that there might be a guy in Boston that kind of resembles me that was trying to do some of that stuff. But that was my only social media story of, of my time in Boston that might be embarrassing because there's probably a lot of people that think they were hanging out with me that weren't. I mean, he's probably still living off of that if he's getting free food and drinks. I would. I'm not mad at the guy. You know, yeah. wrong. I would do it too if I'm getting free food and drinks. If it's free, give me three. Most of the listeners here, when I look at the stats, are actually in Massachusetts. So if you've drank with a six foot eight version of Scott with a replica <laughs> championship ring, then you know, you've been duped. <laughs> you've been talked to the cleaners. Uh, I'd definitely be. In fact, tweet at us. Let us know if you've been drinking yeah. with a a Scott Pollard imposter. Let's try and find this guy. I would love, well, not, not, not to find that guy, but I would love those pictures of, of you and me hanging out. <laughs> it would be awesome to get you both on to have a discussion and see what the stories kind of match up like. That would be great. Tag me. <laughs> <laughs> 
pretty much wraps us up. I mean, I definitely want to touch on Survivor. What was that like for you being on reality TV? Oh, uh, man, reality TV, it's um, – the, the reality part is the surviving, and that's absolutely real. I really – even going on to the show after casting and all that, I really, really did not believe them when they said the surviving part is real. I really thought that after, you know, a little bit of time that they were going to be like, all right, cut, here's the real beds, or here's a coffee, or whatever. I, I made it 28 out of 39 days. I lost 46 pounds in 28 days. It's real. Uh, we didn't eat when we didn't eat. And when we couldn't catch anything or, or anything else, it was just coconut and water. And uh, so we, the surviving part was real. Now the reality part, man, it's reality TV. They, they get uh, three days of footage on average for one episode. So when you're talking about 40 minutes minus 20 minutes of commercials for an hour long episode, you've got 72 hours of footage of 18 people or even down to four or three people. There's a lot of hours of footage they can edit down of your mood, your reaction to something that maybe doesn't even fit where they're trying to piece it together. And uh, I'm not saying for a second that I didn't do what I did and said what I said. I absolutely did all those things and said all those things because it's on camera. So I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is think about your last three days. Did you make some boneheaded comment? Did you make a great comment? Did you sound like a genius, sound like an idiot, make a good joke, seem like a mean asshole? There's all those things that you can do in your personality in three days and they can splice all that together and make it look like that was all happening right back and forth and back and forth. And uh, that's the beauty of reality TV because it is absolutely not reality. Uh, but it gets, it's always been named that and that's what's cool about it. I think that's the biggest uh, dupe of our recent times uh, is people thinking Big Brother is, is happening real time. Now, let's film it real time and see what happens. It'd be real boring. It'd be really boring if they did live Survivor because live Survivor is not that exciting. There's a lot of sitting around doing nothing, baking in the sun. There's a lot of sitting around waiting for the next challenge because there's no strategies to be done because everybody agrees on everything. And then they have you go to a testimonial to try to break up those alliances. And so uh, the whole process is fun. It's uh I would never do it again. Not that I would ever be invited back again because Jeff and I had some words on the way to finale uh, before my season finale aired. Uh, but uh, also, they don't want my story out. I had a blast. <laughs> I did what I wanted to do. Uh, and, and they know if they invite me back, I'm going to do what I want to do again and be even worse because I know what to expect. And so that's why those re the, the, the second and third time they invite people back, they know production's in for it because they know what to expect. And the, the players are way different and way more difficult to deal with. Newbies are a lot easier to deal with because they don't know to, what to expect and they don't know how it goes and they can tell them how it goes. Uh, so uh, for multiple reasons, I would never be back on that show. Uh, but it was, I don't regret it. That's the reason I had my fourth kid. My wife and I had him as soon as I got my phone back in LA. Uh, landing from LA, uh, from Cambodia, I got my phone back and I called my wife. I said, we're having a baby. And she's had a dream while I was gone. She kept a diary while I was gone about halfway through her diary, telling me about what the kids were up to, what she was up to. Uh, she said, I had a dream and she wrote it all down. She had a dream that I called her and I had a big orange dreadlock. Now that wasn't true, <laughs> but, but she, she matched it up. It was funny. We both started crying on the phone because uh, we both had the same kind of dream while I was gone. And, and uh, so we have a, a little guy named Dyson. He's our survivor baby. Uh, the reason why he exists is because of that show. So I, I'll never regret it, but for sure I'll never be back. I mean, that's an awesome story, though, with an amazing ending. 
Yeah. Well, it's it's a happy ending because uh, that show is over. <laughs> for some reason i had joe rogan in my head as the host of that show but it wasn't that he done fear factor right yeah he did fear, fear factor and uh now this is uh um jeff probst is is the host of survivor it's his baby i mean he basically invented the show uh he did some really 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 silly stuff before if you do a history and if you can even find it, they might've done a little internet sweep of his other stuff before Survivor. Cause there's some really idiotic clips of stuff that Jeff Probst used to do uh, to get the Survivor gig. And uh, not that all of it was idiotic, but there's a few nuggets of, of hilariousness uh, that put Jeff Probst in different highlight, but uh, very happy. I mean, it's American dream, man. The guy created a TV show. It's the number one reality TV show of all time. It's the granddaddy of them. I mean, basically it's the first one besides uh, the real world on, on MTV. Uh, and uh, so it's still there 40 seasons in, and the only reason they're not filming right now is because this COVID crap. So, um, you know, it's, it's going to keep going and, and uh, really happy for them and don't have a bad word to say about them, just not going back. And we'll wrap up on this one because I know I said 30 minutes. I've took it over five minutes too long already. We're all right. how, are you, um, how are you coping with COVID? Like with, the lo- yeah, with the lockdowns and whatever else has kind of been thrown your way? You know, um, I, I'm part of a, uh, a community that um, is very close. Uh, we are very much in contact with each other all the time. And uh, while the lockdown, when the governor said stay down and, and do nothing, most of us did. Uh, we still would congregate outside and we would stay away from each other uh, just in case. But um, I would say if you walk around where we are now, uh, you would say not much of a quarantine is going on here. Um, Wish the schools were fully open here in Indiana. Uh, When you look at the data from the CDC, this is not my opinion. Uh, You can look at the data for the CDC for Indiana. There's been three deaths under 20 from this, schools should be open. Uh, the kids have a more high, uh, there's a higher suicide rate in, the, in 2020 uh, than, than three uh, under 20 by, by exponential numbers. And I don't know that number, but I know it's a hell of a lot higher than three. So uh, I, I would say that we're not different than a lot of places in the country, but I would say that uh, Indiana is um, outside of Indianapolis has dealt with it mostly casually. Uh, Indianapolis had some flare-ups, but uh, outside of Indianapolis, there's just the per capita, it's just not a real huge threat for anybody under 65. And my mom is 82. She lives in a full care facility nearby, and I haven't seen her or hugged her in six months. Now we go through and do a glass visit, and they're supposed to relax the the measures and she's taken care of, you know, they're, they're being cautious with her because she is in the highest risk group categories. I mean, she's got diabetes, she's 82, she's a female. I mean, all those things put her at the top of the top of all the lists. Uh, But I guarantee you you ask my mom, if she'd rather hang out with her family one last time and hug and kiss her grandkids and maybe get COVID and die, she would take that option every single time because this six months of isolation has been way worse on her mentality. 
than anything that could happen to her body physically that she hasn't already been into. She's beat cancer twice. She's got a rare disorder. And it's really pathetic that they're still keeping her away from us and against her will. It's, it's pretty sad. But back to your original question, how am I dealing with COVID? Uh, I just had to get that out. Um, we, uh, real estate was deemed a, a, a necessary business. So I've been working the whole time. I've been taking precautions with clients. I wear a mask. I wear gloves when they want me to. Uh, when you go into show somebody's house, they have, they set their own measures. They can have it full on. Like nobody gets to come in. You can do virtual tours only. You can do all kinds of, uh, levels below that, uh, to in person, to no gloves, to, you know, don't touch anything. We'll leave all the lights on kind of thing. So we let the clients that are listing the house set those standards. Uh, we have some people want to have a COVID form signed that says nobody's showing any symptoms, but how do you track that? Uh, so my partner and I, Joe Kempler and I, we don't do that uh, for our listings just because, I, I mean, I had a client, he goes, well, does the homeowner have to sign a COVID form that says they don't have it? I'm walking into their house, you know? And I said, yeah, that makes sense. So we just don't do that. But we've been busy as hell this year. A lot of people are rapidly redefining how they want to live their lives. They want a bigger house. They want a more pool. They want a swimming pool in Indiana. Uh, I can't tell you how many people, business, businesses that make pools this year in Indiana must be booming because I can't tell you how many clients have tried to buy my house that I just built two years ago. And they want to ask me, you know, they're, they're willing to pay the price, but they want to see if they can put a pool in the backyard. And I have a big giant brick wall because I live on a busy street that covers my backyard. And then that's the only reason people haven't paid the price. It's a ridiculous number. And they're like, yeah, I just want to be able to put a pool in and I can't because I'll have to take your wall down. I said, yeah, you're going to have to take my wall down and build a pool. But uh, it's, it's been a, a crazy year. Uh, but you know what? 2019 was still worse because last year my wife got breast cancer and she survived and, and that was great. And she's alive and she's cancer free, but 2020 ain't got nothing on that. Uh, the fear I lived with for a couple months there. And I know that she has the most wonderful story. She beat cancer and I'm not surprised looking back at it because she's such a badass human being. Uh, but you know, when, when you get that word that you have breast cancer and you're, it's your spouse and, and I know she dealt with it in her own way and she's a much stronger human being than I am. But, um, the, the, the things that go through your head of how you're going to live your life with your kids and your, in your, your whole life, what are you going to do if, if things go the wrong way? And so 2019 was still worse for me, uh, than 2020. And uh, I think my wife and I joke about our first marriages were still worse than 2020. So <laughs> that's our little joke. <laughs> I mean, well, I'm happy that she's recovered and she's, she's completely recovered now. Yeah. Yeah. She's cancer free. The surgery took care of it. Um, it didn't spread, which was insane because it was 11 centimeters long. Uh, and they said usually two and it spread. And so she was incredibly lucky. The surgeons took care of it. And, uh, yeah, she's double mastectomy and, and, uh, cancer-free so far, and, and uh, I, I credit her with being as strong a human being as she is. I mean, that's the best. I mean, nothing can make anything better than that at the end. Of, that's the most, health is the most important thing. Yes, sir. That's why 2020, we're like, eh. Yeah, it's got nothing. It's got nothing kind of you, man. We'll, we'll just stick around and hang out with each other because we're just glad we're both here. Yeah, and get, get a few drinks going. And I mean, I didn't realize Indiana was warm enough that everybody needed a pool. It's not. That's what made me giggle because um, three months out of the year is when our pools are open. Like we have three community pools in our neighborhood and they're open from Memorial Day to Labor Day. 
And that's what makes me kind of laugh because it's like, well, the pool is full of chlorine. You're not getting anything you can go for that pool. But, hey, who am I to judge? Somebody wants to buy a new house in my neighborhood and I can sell them a new house in my neighborhood with a pool. I'm all for it. Uh, you know, uh, I don't judge. But I certainly don't want the expense myself uh, of putting a pool in, maintaining a pool for nine months out of the year when I can't use it or paying a ridiculous amount of uh, energy bills to keep it warm so I can use it maybe into October and maybe into maybe as far back as April. But beyond that, it's far too cold to even keep it heated and use it regularly because it's just too cold to get out there. So the people that have pools, hey, they, they really enjoy them in the summertime, but I'm just never here enough in the summertime to enjoy it. Yeah, I'm not paying for a pool unless I'm in Los Angeles, Florida, yeah. somewhere where it's all year round warm, right? Yeah, Phoenix. I'll give me a pool in Phoenix. I'll get one. Houses in Phoenix are cheap. I'm looking like, uh, obviously for me, the goal is to emigrate. And um, I'm like, Phoenix house prices are ridiculously good. They're so reasonable. Like 250K. I mean, houses here are small anyway. I don't know if you've ever been to England. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So houses are tiny, right? So, yeah. um, and I'm, I'm not your size, but I'm a big guy. I'm like 6'3", 6'4". Oh, yeah. It's what, 6'3". So like, um, but they're like, for what you get a small house here for, for like, Two hundred thousand dollars out there. You're getting a in Phoenix. You're getting a mansion. Well, to me, it's a mansion. Like it's like four bedrooms, marble floors, and I need to. Uh, Phoenix is the best place in the world for houses. Look into Las Vegas too. Las Vegas is booming. Same, same Vegas. reason, but it's a little cheaper. Love Vegas. Absolutely. And there's no state income tax in Nevada, so there's no income tax. No state income tax in Nevada. You go work there, and you don't pay state income tax. You only pay federal. I'll work in a casino. I'm happy with that. (laughs) Right, guys, you've been listening to Celtics Blog with me and Scott Pollard. Thank you for joining me today, Scott, man. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me on.